0: Today, Let me guess, you built a machine that gave you your
1: powers, and then you thought you were such hot stuff, you'd build a real big machine and rule the world. Isn't that the way it usually works? Why no Green Arrow, I was born with my powers, the mental half anyway. They set me apart from the other children who couldn't see that I wasn't being snobbish, I really was superior. I quickly realized that their hostile inferiority was a sign of unhealthy minds. And now that I can't do something about it, I shall. My machine will selectively eliminate that part of the population, about 90%, and will leave the Earth a much better place. For those people remaining will naturally defer to me, their superior. And I'll run things sensibly.
0: Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure, the Dun & One Wonders Wonders Podcast Podcast Wonder Wonder Show, hosted by Professor Zoom Yukinori. Today's episode, Ego Tripped. Greetings, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, a celebration of comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story within a single issue. A proud and eventually worthy member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Professor Zoom Yukonori, and I am so delighted to be here. In fact, I am as thrilled as a student who had earned extra credit on his school science project. And this here's the Terror Man. And I'm as chipper as a jaybird to be doing another episode. And don't forget
1: Solomon Grundy, too. And you obviously have saved the best for last. Your most fantabulous guest ever.
0: I am... Uh, but I don't think we should reveal your identity just yet, Mr. I, I mean, Mr. Doctor. And why not? It will add greater suspense if we wait until the dramatic reveal in the story that we are covering today. And sides, I hear them sage hens dig a saddle slicker that's all mysterious like.
1: Indeed. Well, let's get on with the story then, shall we?
0: Uh, yes. But first I must commend Mr. Manning and Mr. Grundy on how clean and organized the studio is today. You had really gone all out to... Uh, Solomon Grundy
1: started to clean
0: up studio... But what Grundy is trying to say
1: is that... It was I who reorganized your paltry excuse for a studio. You will find that your accessibility to the recording and data equipment has increased by 3.7%. Uh,
0: I will take your word on that, Mr... Uh, I mean, Doctor. That is an improvement. But really, you shouldn't have... Oh, he insisted on it. Little Hood Man insists he cleaned better than Grundy. And organized better than Cowboy Man. And he insisted on proving
1: it. And so I did.
0: Ah, uh, indeed. And I greatly appreciate it. But again, you really did not have to...
1: Demonstrate my superiority? Indeed. It is so good to meet someone who finally recognizes their betters. Well, actually, I... But you must be used to that. Now,
0: hold on there. What do you mean
1: by that? Well, obviously, given his physical state, or lack thereof.
0: Let it go, Grundy. Unfortunately, I had grown accustomed to those kinds of remarks. Well, I can see who definitely has more class. Oh, really? Okay, before somebody says something he might regret, why don't we dive into our coverage of today's Done in One Wonder comic book story, which is Justice League of America, Volume 1, Issue 224. Cover dated March of 1984, but according to the brilliant Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, it was on sale on December 8th, 1983. My understanding was that this issue featured the first of a short run of Justice League adventures that were penned by guest writers, while regular Justice League scribe Jerry Conway was formulating his plans for the upcoming Martian Invasion storyline that would culminate in the formation of what would be known as the Detroit era of the Justice League. This was also the first Justice League story by the award-winning writer Kurt Busiek, who would later co-produce the celebrated Marvels miniseries and create the fantastically brilliant Astro City series, as well as become the writer of the amazing JLA Avengers event that I had the pleasure of discussing with Paul Hicks on his DCOCD
1: podcast. I am sure this Busic's writing on these series is adequate, but it is this particular story that deserves special attention. That is why it is on this broadcast pod, is it? Podcast. Right podcast. I knew that. In fact, I know more about podcasting than any of you.
0: Says the dude who has his head mic too close to his big bazoo.
1: And the key to a superior podcast is to get to the subject matter straight away. So why don't we cut this senseless prattle and...
0: Alright, that's it. Why does this spoozy old stick get off with... Uh, poor manners aside, we did invite him here to provide his unique point of view on this particular Justice League story. Grundis say Lamo computer should put little hood man back where we found him. Seconded. Ah,
1: now let's not be too hasty.
0: So long as everyone behaves, we can continue. I
1: can demonstrate more impeccable manners than would here, good sir.
0: Right. Let us hope so. Lenos. Greetings and salutations. I am Lenos, the latest automated marvel that exemplifies
1: the optimum. How may I serve
0: you today?
1: Well, someone, or rather, something, sees a need to overcompensate. What would that? Nothing, nothing.
0: Uh, Lenos, please pull up our digital copy of Justice League of America, Volume 1, issue 224. Acknowledged. Acknowledged. Thank, thank you. Thank you, you, Lenos. Right. Thank they you. Can, thank you, Lenos. label computer. Okay. Now, before I begin, I should point out that, although this book was on my list of additional stories to cover, it was also recommended by listeners Siskoid and Jason Pope when I had asked for recommendations of favorite done-in-one comic book stories, so I hope this will be a favorite of yours as well. Let us start with the cover, which was a play on the famous page from The Tale of Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 1, Issue 50. Spider-Man No More, which showed Peter Parker in street clothes walking away from an alley trash can containing the Spider-Man costume which hung out of the can over the rim. On this Justice League cover, a pair of alley trash cans are filled with rubbish and have the abandoned costumes and equipment of Green Arrow, Superman, Wonder Woman and Green Lantern strewn about as well as the dismembered chest and torso of the red tornado, which was pretty disturbing to see. Meanwhile, a shadowed figure with a puffy-sleeved shirt was walking away. Graffiti on the alley wall asked, Who is Paragon? It was a clever homage, and as the 21-year-old comic book reader at the time that had thrilled to Justice League Adventures for over a decade, I wondered yet again if this tale would truly be a case of... Justice League, no more? Let's find out as we delve into the story within entitled The Supremacy Factor. Guest writer, the aforementioned Kurt Busick. Illustrators, Chuck Patton and Dick Giordano. Letterers, John Costanza and Todd Klein. Colorist, Gene D'Angelo. Editor, Len Wein. Our story began at what appeared to be a popular fresco seafood eatery in Star City, curiously named Nemo's Revenge.
1: Sounds like an establishment that would list salmonella with a side of Campylobacter under the house specials.
0: I am sure it was a little inside joke from the guest writer. Oliver Queen, who was entering the outdoor dining area, and who brandished both a manly man-bag at his side, along with a tuft of chest hair through the low-cut V-neck of his T-shirt, proclaimed that the place must have good food. After all, an East Coast newsman and a West Coast test pilot were patronizing the establishment. Mr. Queen was referring to the friends he was meeting, who were already seated with drinks at a table for four. Newsman Clark Kent, with a lemonade, and test pilot Hal Jordan with a mug of beer. Their server smiled, thinking herself to be lucky to have three great-looking guys alone at her table. Maybe she was hoping to get lucky. Mr. Manning. I am certain her visual scans had denoted that the three men did not wear any finger bands that symbolize a mating relationship, and therefore... Lenos Her
1: short-cropped hair and dimples were quite fetching. But I had seen prettier. Doctor...
0: Was Grundy supposed to say something about pretty freckle-faced girl? No. Instead, let me comment on how much I love this opening scene. The staging by penciler Chuck Patton was just wonderful, as the positioning of the three main male characters guided the eye to follow the course of their conversation. And the background was very slice-of-life, with both the waitress and a young woman seated at a table ogling Oliver Queen from different angles. And at another table behind Clark Kent, we see a man who is introducing his father to a lady friend, and another waitress was busily carrying drinks to another table off-panel. And the different clothing styles for each person, and the little details from Clark's and Hal's respective drinks to the forks and spoons in the waitress's apron pocket, ...and the always sharp finishes by veteran Dick Giordano. It all came together beautifully.
1: I will admit these artists are indeed worthy to depicting this particular story.
0: And that's probably the closest this falutin' yahoo will come to a compliment. We shall see. Proceeding with the story, Clark mentioned that it was good for the three of them to get together when they were not... ...working. And they really should try to do it more often. Hal agreed and then asked Ollie where Dinah was, referring to Ollie's girlfriend- MATING RELATION Ah, uh, Dinah Lance. Hal expected Ollie and Dinah to arrive together. Ollie looked at his watch, stating that Dinah had something to do, but expected her to be with them by now, and wondered what was keeping her. Clark said not to worry too much about it, as none of them were exactly great at keeping appointments.
1: Why are we wasting our time on these numpty Crittens? When do we get to the part where Black Canary and those low-rate muggers?
0: Right now. For in the next panel, the shapely silhouette of Black Canary alighted on the fire escape of a Star City building. She thought to herself about how she was going to be running even later for dinner than she thought, for, quote, cleaning up a simple bank robbery had taken her all afternoon. And now there was an attempted mugging to deal with. From Black Canary's perspective, in the alley below, A man in a hat and trench coat was surrounded by four young hooligans in garish, ragtag clothing. The hooligans demanded the man's wallet, or else they were going to, quote, hurt him.
1: Really? And how would you propose they do that? The four muggers appeared
0: to be armed. Two wielded a knife, another a long metal pipe, and the fourth a pair of nunchaku. Alarmed by the man's provocation, and wondering to herself if the man in the hat and coat had a death wish, Black Canary leaped from her perch in the fire escape, realizing that she had better get down there fast. But before she even reached the ground, the mysterious man in the trench coat picked up one of the knife-wielders by the throat with his left hand, while swatting the other away with his right At the same time, he knocked the mugger with the nunchaku out of action with a swift kick to the solar plexus. Meanwhile, the mugger with the pipe staggered back, dumbfounded.
1: The depths to which their kind would sink never ceased to amaze me. The way they roamed in packs, stalking prey, no vestige of human decency. They were nothing but animals.
0: Also surprised was the black canary, who... In
1: fact, they were even less than animals, for animals had no choice to be what they are.
0: Well, that is one person's opinion. Noticing the incredible fighting skills of...
1: Superior fighting skills?
0: (sighs) Superior fighting skills of what was originally misconstrued as a poor, helpless victim, Black Canary wondered if the man in the trench coat may have actually been the Batman in disguise. At this time, the Batman had left the Justice League and formed his own crime-fighting team called the Outsiders. But as she watched the mysterious man in the trench coat slam the man he held in a chokehold into a nearby garbage can, she realized that not even at his most obsessed, the Batman, or at least the pre-crisis Batman of 1984, was never this brutal. (laughs) Yeah, that'll change afore long. The remaining mugger, seeing that the man's back was turned after throwing his comrade, finally found his nerve to attack with the pipe, but the man effortlessly ducked the swing. The mugger also found his voice, and stammered, Holy
1: freaking spit! Who... who are you, man? Who was he? Oh, he was your better... man. And more than that, he was your death. Or he would have been your death if that pathetic black canary did not intervene.
0: The man's swift-gloved punch to the mugger's face knocked out some of the mugger's teeth, along with his consciousness. As the man started to grip the base of the felled mugger's head, Black Canary stepped forward and asked the trench-coated man if he should call the police instead of... well, what it looked like he was about to do. What trench-coat man about to do? Snap his neck.
1: Oh. She sort of stayed out of this. That... Creature did not deserve to live, I, that man, was merely correcting nature's mistake.
0: But that ain't his choice to make, Jake. Which was essentially what the Black Canary said in response, adding that while the trench-coated man may have been the hottest martial artist since Bruce Lee, he was not above the law. The man scoffed at her remark, warning the Canary to be careful, for if she was to presume to judge the actions of her superiors she would find herself to be judged in turn. And his judgment would be particularly harsh. Oh boy, here we go. Looks like we has ourselves a showdown. Can't wait to see that purty birdie missy clean this smog hombre's plow. Yeah! That was indeed how page five began, with a page-length panel of the trench-coated man stepping forward, fists and teeth clenched, as Black Canary crouched to a battle stance. Her clever banter commended the man for winning the Mr. Overbearing Award and urged him to get this fight over with so that she can get to her dinner date. My, my.
1: She seems so sure of herself.
0: Indeed. Her thought balloon acknowledged that the stranger could handle himself in a fight, but she knew a few tricks that were designed to take care of an expert like him. Or so she had thought. Indeed, that is what she had thought.
1: No, I mean...
0: He knew what you meant. The professor was just funnin' with ya. Yeah. Panel 2 was a sudden reverse angle, which showed the Black Canary effortlessly parry the attacker's Skake advance with a deft Aageuge, thinking that she would easily set him up for her next move. This move was attempted in Panel 3, a Muay Thai inner knee sweep intended to force the man backward except the man had positioned his right leg to prevent the sweep while he grabbed her wrist. The man somehow managed to compliment the canary on her planned mode of attack and its intent to inflict a maximum of effect with an economy of motion, as he continued to shift the canary's movement into a throw that sent her literally heels overhead. So pretty bird lady didn't set up trench coat man. Trenchcoat man set
1: up purty bird lady. Indeed. Black Canary was good, very good, but he was better.
0: I have to admire how the last three panels of this page had done an effective job of conveying not only the steps of the battle, but exemplifying a seamless sense of motion. This was especially true with panels three and four at the bottom of the page. I can actually fill the in-between motion in my head from when the man blocked the canary's leg to when he tossed her with, I presume it was a seonage, and I also presume it was two-handed.
1: Indeed it was.
0: Now, Batgirl and I had discussed in Episode 8 how such a throw would not typically send a person flying across a room, or, in this
1: case, an alleyway. Unless there was some superior strength involved. That
0: would be a reasonable factor to consider in a Justice League story, yes. Indeed. The page's final thought balloon evoked a sense of peril, as the Black Canary expositorily explained that if she did not continue her spin just right, she would break her back. Fortunately, the Black Canary managed a twist in mid-air and broke her fall on a cluster of rubbish bins without breaking anything else though she noted to herself that she was going to be sore for a week. Since the first bout of unarmed combat did not work, she resorted to using her ultrasonic canary cry to subdue her opponent. However, other than knocking off the trench-coated stranger's hat, which revealed a black, space-ghost style of cowl underneath, the sonic scream did not affect him at all. Of course not!
1: After all, her sonic shrill would not affect-
0: Uh, let us not get too far ahead of ourselves.
1: Speak for yourself.
0: Say, that reminds me. I was gonna go make ourselves some pineapple cherry walnut dump cake, like my dear departed Aunt Susie taught me. I'd best get started on it now, so we all can have some during this-
1: That sounds like a tasty treat, but I know how to make that a veritable delicacy. Ah- if you would be so kind to direct me to your kitchen?
0: Down the hall, fifth door on your right.
1: Thank you, I shan't be long. That to keep him busy.
0: Mr. Manning, what? The dude can't help himself. Always gotta prove he's better. So easy to get little hood man to do stuff for us. Like clean and organize the studio? Uh... Okay, I admit that I do not like our guest any more than you do, but I still cannot believe you are taking advantage of his... compulsion to manipulate him in this way. But, Professor, we's just about to get to the part of the story where Kent, Jordan, and Queen reveal their secret IDs. You want to have him go back where he came from with that knowledge? Oh... You are quite right. I I should have realized. Indeed. According According to my past observations, you should have realized and prepared for this eventuality. You do seem a bit distracted lately. What's going on? Just what you said. Distractions. From my life outside of the podcast studio. One of the reasons this episode had taken so long to record. Gotcha. You don't have to go into it if you don't want to. Why don't we press on? Indeed. Page 5, panel 4. But first, Lenos. Yes, Entity Zoom Yukonori? Please keep an eye on our guest. Phasers on stun. Acknowledged. Now that is the Entity Zoom Yukonori I had recorded in my memory banks. Back to the story. While the canary cry did not affect the hooded stranger, it did affect someone else across town. For back at Nemo's Revenge, Clark Kent suddenly clutched his ear, notifying his friends that his super hearing had picked up the sonic scream, and it was at full intensity. Realizing that Black Canary could be in trouble, the three immediately departed with Hal Jordan quickly covering the cost of their unfinished drinks by tossing a number of bills to their abruptly crestfallen server. Meanwhile, Black Canary continued to fight the hooded stranger, calling on every iota of her skill and power, knowing that if she did not stop him, he would kill all of the down muggers, and most likely herself as well. However, no matter what move she made, the stranger seemed to be three steps ahead of her. She could not even touch him. And then, the stranger proclaimed that it was time, quote, to put an end to this fiasco, and stunned the canary with an Ushiro Hijiate, or rear elbow strike, to to the back of her head. And then he knocked her down with a Mawashigeri, or roundhouse kick to her back. Solomon Grundy not like seeing pretty bird lady getting knocked round like that. It was disturbingly brutal, to be sure, which was why I was a bit apprehensive of even covering this story on the podcast. Even though the most vicious part of the attack was confined to this one page, I had found it to be very disturbing when I had first read this story back in 1984 and I find it even more disturbing now. I believe part of that was due to the fact that artist Chuck Patton had laid out the scene in such a way to not show the Black Canary's face as she was viciously struck by the trench-coated man in Panels 2 and 3, leaving the pain and anguish that she must have experienced up to the reader's imagination. And you have a lot of that. Well, yes... Not that this was any saving grace for this scene, but I did admire the dialogue in the following panel. As the masked man lifted the barely conscious Black Canary by by her neck, he mused aloud that not once in their fight had she made the slightest cry of pain, and in her thoughts, Black Canary responded that she would not give him the satisfaction. Now that is tombstone tough right there. Yeah. Indeed. The masked man lifted his right hand to deliver what appeared to be a killing blow, but the now-recovered and fleeing muggers realized that Trenchcoat was in trouble now, for streaking in from the right side of the panel were the two clenched fists of Superman. Grundy never thought Grundy be happy to see flying man. The next panel was another sudden reverse angle shot that showed the Man of Steel had opened his fist to shove the trench coated mass man away from the dazed Black Canary, who immediately slumped to the ground. Writer Kurt Busick also chose to introduce Superman with a bit of flourish in the captions. This is Superman. Superman. Who traverses galaxies as easily as you or I would cross streets. Superman, who shatters titanium steel like glass. Superman, who shrugs off atomic explosions without breaking stride. This is Superman, and he's mad. This would pay off in a couple of panels later in the story, on page 8. In the meantime, Superman clutched a fistful of the masked man's trench coat as he held him fast against the alley wall. Superman turned back toward the fallen black canary with concern, giving the man the opportunity to throw an uppercut punch at the Man of Steel. The section of trench coat held in Superman's fist tore from the rest of the garment and traveled with Superman up, up, and way away, narrowly missing the arriving Green Lantern and Green Arrow in the process. Shoot! Flying, man! Really go flying! And the accompanying caption delivered the payoff to the previous ones with a somewhat dismissive, That was Superman. The Arrow demanded Green Lantern to get down to the alley fast, since the person who could do that to Superman was still down there with Black Canary but before they could land, the mass man was gone. Green Lantern thought he had seen a blur, suggesting that he had escaped at super speed, but he could not be sure. Green Arrow did not care about that at the moment and saw to the fallen canary, who assured the arrow that she would be fine, but would still appreciate the TLC. Superman then descended next to the lantern, happy to report that the ozone layer was still there. He knocked him that hard? Shoot! The lantern said that the mystery man got away clean. Not clean, Superman responded, holding up the piece of trench coat that he had torn loose. It included a pocket that contained some handwritten notes. They decided to call on the other available Justice Leaguers to see about returning those notes to their rightful owner. Page 9 cut to a location high above the earth with a cinematic sequence of wide panels showcasing the Justice League satellite in synchronous orbit. A caption stated that the satellite was always stationed 22,300 miles above Midtown Metropolis. That can't be right. Synchronous orbit is geostationary, which can only be achieved if-
1: If it it is positioned along Earth's equator.
0: Oh, him again. The woman
1: beater. The satellite cannot remain stationed over Midtown Metropolis because the bulge of the Earth would actually pull on the satellite's path as it makes its orbit, causing it to shift its position.
0: I will have to take your word on that. Grindy thought little Professor Mayer knew everything. I actually do not know a lot of things. I defer to Mr. Manning when it comes to astrophysics. That is definitely out of my wheelhouse. I could theorize, however that perhaps the satellite was not in a natural orbit per se, and that the Thanagarian technology that was intrinsic in the satellite's design was what enabled the League to station it consistently above Metropolis. The Thanagarians did master anti-gravity, after all.
1: It seems your little professor man knows more than he lets on, but you can be sure that I know quite a bit more... How's that
0: dump cake coming along?
1: I have already mixed it. The oven should finish preheating in... Oven?
0: You can only get that authentic open-range dump cake flavor if you bake it over an open fire. Every koozie worth his salt knows that.
1: Indeed. I, I knew that. I merely thought I would... Trade
0: perfection for efficiency? Of course not. Indoor grill makes a decent fire pit on the left of the stove. Indeed. Lenos, Maintaining visual contact. Very good. Keep me apprised. Thank you. Huh. That was a little easier to reach. Back to page 9, and that cinematic sequence of four wide panels showcasing the Justice League satellite. Each panel zoomed in closer and closer until it reached the outer window of the meeting room, and the Justice Leaguers in conference therein. Superman, Black Canary, Green Arrow, and Green Lantern had been joined by Wonder Woman, Red Tornado, and Firestorm. Wonder Woman summed up her assessment of the reported events that evening, and was curious how someone who seemed to be a match for the Black Canary was able to casually knock Superman into the stratosphere with a single blow. She asked Black Canary if the man was not merely toying with her during the fight, But the Canary responded that while he was a better fighter, he was not that much better, and she would have been able to tell if he was more than that during their battle. While this information would become a vital clue later, Superman felt that the discussion was not getting them anywhere at the moment. There was an unknown villain with unknown abilities and unknown motives. In short, Firestorm added in his own immutable style, they had zilch. What bout them thar notes old Super latched onto? Right. Superman knew the torn piece of notepad paper was covered by mathematical equations of some kind, but not like any he had ever seen, even with his Bronze Age superintelligence. He handed the paper to the Red Tornado, thinking that his computer brain might be able to discern them. And there was a great little side note of Green Arrow constantly checking that Black Canary is okay. I keep telling you, I'm fine, she whispered with a smile. Aw, what a cute couple. Little Arrow Man seems to be a bit too over-pro... over-pro... smothering. Green Arrow had typically been portrayed as extremely chauvinistic, though with a big heart. Not intending to excuse that by any means... And even though she loved him, Black Canary would not excuse it either, and would often remind Green Arrow that she did not need to be coddled. The Red Tornado looked over the notes, and was only able to confirm that they were chemical equations, which are actually quite different than mathematical equations, I understand, so it was odd for Superman to not recognize them as such, but that really didn't matter in the overall story. The rest of this page was simply brilliant. Firestorm asked the Red Tornado to let him take a look at the notes. You, Firestorm, the arrow replied, you can't even read a road map. Black Canary casually tells the arrow to hush up and let him have his chance. And in the next brilliant panel, Firestorm called on the subconscious persona of his composite alter ego of physicist Martin Stein, Ph.D., who did recognize the equations, and in a clever use of overlapping word balloons, Firestorm repeated aloud to the other leaguers the explanation the professor provided in his head. The equations were regarding transubstantive RNA coding, and that he had heard that someone had been making great advances in that field recently, but he apologized for not knowing who. Green Lantern essentially told Firestorm not to be sorry since he did better than the rest of the leaguers assembled. The Lantern had the Justice League computer scan the latest scientific journals on the subject, which Snapper Carr probably had to input at some and… The computer responded with a rather smug-looking photograph of Dr. Joel Cochin, a multi-Nobel prize-winning scientist but with no field of specialization. And yet, he seemed to make fantastic discoveries that set the world on its ear. And he lived in a laboratory outside of Star City. Green Arrow was determined that this was their guy and to go bring him in and invited Firestorm along. Seeing as the kid helped them crack that equation nut, I reckon. Indeed. Wonder Woman suggested that they exercise caution, since they knew nothing about the man, his powers, or his plans. She suggested calling in the Atom to investigate quietly, which made the arrow even more determined to go. Seeing how Cochin had, quote, stomped the canary, he did not think their target should be treated with kid gloves. That's more of that chauvinistication again, ain't it? Mm Mm-hmm and Black Canary was quick to call him on it. Since she was the one who got stomped, she felt that she should have a say in the matter, and rightly so. She agreed with Wonder Woman that they needed more information, so she declared that she would accompany Green Arrow and Firestorm, as well as be the one calling the shots, so that they do indeed investigate Cochin's lab quietly. The three leaguers beamed down to a teleport tube in Star City, stated to be atop the Polchaski building, and then Firestorm flew the arrow and canary to Cochin's address on the outskirts of town, carrying them on a giant set of archaic balancing scales, created by his atomic restructuring powers. Firestorm commented that the house was, quote, flaky, because there were no normal doors or windows, The only opening was a large roll-down bracket door off to one side, at the driveway. And by the looks of that hog wallow of a driveway, a lot of heavy equipment must have been dragged in and out of that door. Exactly what Green Arrow had surmised. I read the wordy balloon. Indeed. While Black Canary and Green Arrow looked for another way to sneak in, Firestorm thought the cold, tomb-like appearance made the laboratory the spookiest one he had ever seen. So it was quite a hoot when the ghostly mental persona of Professor Martin Stein, with a cheeky grin, started to recite the opening of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore to which Firestorm told the professor to cut it out because it was giving him the creeps. It was a great bit of the professor having a little fun with Ronald Raymond that I had actually rarely seen in Firestorm's own title, but perhaps should had. At the top of page 13, Green Arrow was growing more frustrated and more impatient. He extended his collapsible bow, ready to charge in, and told Firestorm to use his powers to blast a hole in the wall. The Black Canary, who was supposed to be calling the shots, reminded the nuclear man that they were supposed to be investigating quietly. As a sizzling hole began to manifest on the laboratory wall, Firestorm insisted that he had heard the Canary's orders and that whatever was happening to the wall was not his doing. And this was true because the hole in the wall was
1: actually being created by... I have returned... And the best dump cake you have ever tasted is cooling on the dining table.
0: And you're just in time, doctor.
1: Ah, is it time for my dramatic reveal? Yep. Well then, my cue.
0: Ah, right. As a sizzling hole began to manifest on the laboratory wall, Firestorm insisted that he had heard the canary's orders, and that whatever was happening to the wall was not his doing.
1: Of course not. Dissolving the wall was my doing and I would say I was doing rather well. I, Dr. Joel Cochin, had finally revealed myself to those insipid do-gooders as Paragon. and Anything they could do, I could do better.
0: Paragon now stood before the three leaguers in full costume, which was formally covered by the trench coat. A pretty gaudy thing, ain't it? A bit difficult to describe. Grundy say we should post scene up on gallery page. "'That way Grunde don't have to find the words.'
1: "'Well, I never!'
0: "'Actually, you had, for Firestorm was not impressed. "'He expected to meet a scientist, and not Ethel Merman. "'One nuclear blast restructured the air around Paragon "'into a cylindrical bond of solid steel, "'complete with matching weighted boots. "'And this steel was triple its normal density.'
1: An impressive display of prowess. But really, did Firestorm seriously think that would stop me? After all, would it stop him? I think not.
0: There was a blinding glow, which forced Green Arrow to ask aloud what Paragon was doing. Firestorm explained that Paragon was dissipating the bonds, the same way Firestorm himself would, but he did not understand how. The now free Paragon stepped forward toward Firestorm, his hands flaring with nuclear energy.
1: For someone with a genius level physics mentality, Firestorm could really be stupid sometimes. Could he not see that I was using his own powers?
0: With their foe's attention focused on Firestorm, Black Canary told Green Arrow to run a play they called Plan Gemini, which we will get to in a moment. But I will say here that this was the first time I had read a reference to a specific attack strategy that they had no doubt rehearsed in countless training hours. It just added an extra, yet logical, dimension to a pair of crime fighters that had worked together for so long. Meanwhile, Paragon used Firestorm's powers to create a brass battering ram to knock the nuclear man back.
1: Actually, it was a bronze battering ram, which is harder.
0: But I didn't get how you were able to do all of that.
1: It's really quite simple. I possess the physical and mental abilities of anyone within a certain range. But whatever they've got, I've got more. So you see, I am just naturally superior to anyone else.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So you're a better fighter than Black Canary. Indeed. And
1: stronger than Flying Man. Stronger and faster, as I had demonstrated.
0: And better at using Firestorm powers. Of course. And better than me at making Dump Cake. You'll see. Grundy bet Grundy can wash dishes faster than Little Hood Man.
1: You're on. (laughs)
0: Heh heh heh. Really, Grundy? Little Hood Man more stupid than Grundy. Grundy, you are not stupid. Grundy know that. Grundy real smart. That's why Little Hood Man more stupid. Lanos, Still maintaining visual contact. Entity Joel Cochin continues to accept whatever challenge Entity Terra Man and Entity Solomon Grundy present to him. Still, we need to continue to monitor. He may be more devious than anyone here. Thank you, Lanos. What's that supposed to mean? Well, when you were a super criminal, you were quite devious, were you not? Course. But I, uh, don't do that super criminal stuff now. Of course not. But now you're using your deviousness in different ways. Like tricking Dr. Cochin into making a dessert you had no intention of making. Oh, uh, yeah. Even though he has our mental smarts, he can't read minds. Speaking of, let's get back to the story. I think I can tolerate these Paragon scenes better when you narrate them. Mr. Manning. Come on, Professor. You heard him yourself. He spreads himself like he's the hog at the trough. But he's nothing but a honey humbug. He ain't even a real doctor. Lest there's some other real doctor around. Well, he should be here when we get to his master plan. You're the boss. Boss. We had left off at the bottom of page 14. While Paragon attacked Firestorm with the bronze battering ram, Black Canary could be seen charging toward the villain's left side. But Paragon saw her coming and made a... made a skake strike in her solar plexus, knocking the wind out of her. He bragged that no matter how good she was, she could never beat him. Maybe not, but she sure can set you up real good. This taunt came from the Green Arrow, who was launching a flurry of different trick arrows past a surprised paragon. Plan Gemini obviously involved Black Canary to feint an attack to set the person up for the arrow. Green Arrow acknowledged that Paragon may be better with a bow, but he had neither a bow nor arrows, so he may as well hang it up. Of course, with a dazed firestorm nearby, Paragon vaporized all of the arrows in mid-flight boasting that he could build better arrows and even use Firestorm's abilities to create them out of thin air. But why should he bother, when he could use the felled Black Canary's sonic powers to subdue the arrow? I gotta admit, he does know how to use them lifted powers quite sensibly. I also like the brilliant detail in the narrative caption noting that Black Canary's sonic song was soprano and when wielded by Paragon was a rich baritone. With Green Arrow out of action, Paragon then used his baritone Canary Cry to down the recovered Firestorm before he could press another attack. At this point, Black Canary had recovered from Paragon's punch, and knowing she had no chance against Paragon alone, reached for her Justice League signal device concealed in the cameo of her choker. Paragon, however, saw the canary's action, thinking she was going for a hidden weapon, and used Firestorm's powers to make the ground swallow her up and immobilize her. As he stood over the buried Black Canary, Paragon muttered aloud that he planned to leave the Justice League out of his... solution, since after him they would be the best mankind had to offer. But if they were going to oppose him then the Justice League would just have to die. So he killed her? Just like that? That sadistic? Actually, and thankfully, the next panel revealed that Black Canary was unburied and shackled to a wall within the laboratory, along with Firestorm and Green Arrow. Still, I may have been an infamous intergalactic outlaw, but least I'd abide by the cowboy code. Well, part of it, anywho. But this snippet is a wolf.
1: And time. 3.64 minutes. And that included your half. Uh,
0: (sighs) We had just come to the part where you had captured the three Justice Leaguers and had them shackled to your laboratory wall with clamps that somehow resisted even Firestorm's powers.
1: Naturally, since I had greater control over those powers than he ever did.
0: Green Arrow remained defiant reminding you that there had been dozens of villains not unlike yourself, and that the League had always stopped
1: them. Which was an ironic thing to say, seeing as how at the time the League was actually helping me.
0: The next page revealed a large machine in partial construction, almost 20 feet high, which I suppose resembled some sort of broadcasting
1: device. Indeed, my solution. I had planned on another three months' work to finish it, but by adding the Green Arrow's technical know-how and Firestorm's physics knowledge to my own not-inconsiderable expertise... From the PhDs you had locked in the basement, no doubt. I am ignoring that. The added knowledge enabled me to complete the machine design work much more quickly than I thought possible. What's more, I no longer had to configure my design to accommodate available parts, which I had also needed to locate, order, and await delivery. With Firestorm's powers, I could simply materialize whatever components I needed, even preassembled if I liked Yes. Thanks to the Justice League, my machine would have been completed in about another four hours.
0: What does Little Hoodman's broadcast machine do? I see Green Arrow figured Paragon built a smaller machine that gave him his powers. And was now building this bigger one to rule the world. You know, the usual.
1: Green Arrow was wrong, of course. I was actually born with my powers. The mental health, anyway. It had set me apart from other children, who thought that I was merely snobbish. They could not see that I was actually their superior. I quickly realized their hostile inferiority was a sign of unhealthy minds, and my machine was designed to fix that. Once completed, it would broadcast a signal that would piggyback on all the radio and television broadcasts throughout the world and selectively eliminate that unhealthy inferior part of the population, about 90%. Then the planet would be a much better place.
0: I'm sure that would include every single gent that used to pick on you when you was a young'un.
1: Purely coincidental.
0: And every pretty girl that ever spurned you. Again, coincidental. Black Canary believed that eliminating 90% of the population would devastate the world.
1: Balderdash! The 10% remaining would naturally defer to me their superior. And I had planned to run things sensibly.
0: Black Canary winced at the thought and wondered if she had managed to activate her signaler before she was swallowed up by the ground earlier.
1: I was not aware of that. I was busy building my machine, and talking about myself, of course. I had explained that the physical half of my powers came with the onset of puberty, and that nobody bullied me again shortly thereafter.
0: Uh-huh. You just
1: bullied others, I bet. That was beside the point, but they had it coming. I bet.
0: Back to the story. At this part of the explanation, Paragon suddenly experienced what he had called a phenomenal power surge, as the rest of the active Justice Leaguers, Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Red Tornado, had arrived, literally raising the roof off the laboratory. Pretty bird girl activated signal device after all. Indeed. Green Lantern said that they had heard Paragon's whole story, no doubt thanks to Superman's super hearing, And the only place that Paragon was going to rule was a padded cell.
1: He was trying to threaten me, but their timing couldn't be better, for I had already decided to kill the League, so they would not interfere with my plans. And they were considerate enough to drop by and give me the chance to do so.
0: And with that, Paragon used Firestorm's flight powers to leap up and strike the first blow, knocking Superman into the red tornado. Meanwhile, Firestorm had finally managed to break his bonds, Apparently by using the increased strength of his composite form, and possibly increasing his own molecular density. While Firestorm worked to free Green Arrow and Black Canary, Paragon took out Superman with what I was sure to be a combination of Black Canary's fighting kick and Superman's raw power.
1: Think of it as a Super takayari.
0: Paragon managed to throw the Red Tornado into a nearby tree, practically breaking it in half before Green Lantern ensnared him in a force field and started to fly him away from the scene.
1: Green Lantern was trying to psych me out, saying how his ring was as strong as his will, and he was able to hold even Superman. But I reminded him that I was stronger than Superman, and my willpower was greater than his.
0: And with that, Paragon broke out of the power ring force field and punched out the Emerald
1: Gladiator. He was clever to try and take me away from the others, a little bit further and I would have been out of range.
0: Who bore howdy. Taking this galoot down was a hard road a hoe Paragon made his way back to the grounds of his property to find Superman, Wonder Woman, and the completely freed Firestorm charging at him. Wonder Woman made an impassioned plea for Paragon to consider the billions of innocent people who had done him no harm and yet would be threatened by his plan. Paragon ignored this and fired a nuclear blast at them, which Superman blocked with his then invulnerable cape, not realizing that the actual purpose of the blast was to form a chain of kryptonite around the Man of Steel. While Wonder Woman tore the kryptonite chains off Superman, Paragon socked Firestorm with a mighty two-handed blow that sent him flying.
1: What was interesting here was that Superman's power was sapped away by the kryptonite chains but it did not matter, for Wonder Woman's strength was adequate enough for my immediate purposes."
0: Paragon then hovered over Green Arrow and Black Canary, who arrived to join the battle. His hand flared to create a nuclear burst and... Then it flickered down to a few tiny sparks, as Paragon had essentially knocked Firestorm out of range. With Superman still weakened by the Kryptonite, Paragon used Wonder Woman's abilities to leap after Firestorm to regain his power, as well as her agility to dodge all of the shafts Green Arrow fired in an attempt to bring him down. It was here that Black Canary had an idea, and ordered the Red Tornado to hit Paragon hard. Ugh, I hate this part. Standing from the felled tree... Red Tornado whirled his arms to create a tornado blast that knocked Paragon out of the air, stating that he did not understand what purpose the action would serve. Wonder Woman understood Black Canary's plan, however, and as she carried the weakened Superman away to recover from the Kryptonite, she ordered Green Lantern to carry out the next step. Green Lantern's power ring formed a pair of pincers that plucked the hurtling Paragon out of the air and swung him into a tree. The Lantern noted that Paragon could not copy his nor Red Tornado's powers since they are artificial. And now that they used those powers to knock Paragon off balance, the rest of the League could make sure he stayed that way. What followed was a fun eight-panel page of the various leaguers taking turns essentially knocking Paragon around. Green Arrow fired a gas arrow into the tree that Paragon was knocked against, which burst in his face. Then Firestorm created a giant spring from the ground that sent Paragon flying upward. Then Red Tornado created a cyclone to slow Paragon's descent while at the same time making him dizzy and spiraling the villain toward Wonder Woman, who socked Paragon back into the sky, only to be clomped on the head by a giant Power Ring hammer. It was at this point that Paragon proclaimed that it was unfair for them all to gang up on him this way, before he was knocked backward by a white and pink blur. I presume this was Superman making a super-speed
1: flyby. Indeed it was, being all super smug about fairness.
0: Tain't that the pot calling the kettle black? To clarify, Superman responded to Paragon crying unfair by asking whether he was considering fairness when he decided to kill off 90% of humanity. Grundy say, best page ever. You bet, Grundy that was good there was not only a clever use of taking terms teamwork but artist Chuck Patton had set up all of these shots so they focused exclusively on Paragon and what was happening to him and all of the attacking leaguers were essentially off panel Wonder Woman was the only exception but then all that we could see was her left fist and the dialogue and banter throughout this sequence was so well done and so spot on. I could tell which character was speaking, and there were just some fun lines in here. Firestorm and Red Tornado quoted the old going up, going down gag from many a classic cartoon. Wonder Woman expressed regret of the necessity of having to hit Paragon in order to stop him, and then Green Lantern admitted having no regrets at all. It was all simply brilliant. On the final page, Paragon crashed down into the ground after Superman's punch. Dazed, he started to right himself on his knees as Black Canary stepped toward him. She informed Paragon that, although his powers may have made him better than anyone else in the world, they could not make him superior to everyone else he was not even a match for these seven Justice Leaguers. I
1: really, really, really hate this part.
0: Though his voice was weak from the recent battering, Paragon strived to be defiant, telling the Canary that she could not harm him thanks to him acquiring Superman's invulnerability. Black Canary was quick to remind him that Superman was already miles away and out of range, and that she owed him this, a swift Magari to the face. Solomon Grunde wrong earlier. Grunde say this best page in story. With Paragon unconscious, the seven leaguers gathered around him. Red Tornado affirmed that once again teamwork had prevailed over raw power. As well it should. Wonder Woman complimented Black Canary on the final knockout blow but was also quick to remind her that they should strike for justice and not vengeance. Oh, that was justice, all right. Old Periwog here had it coming. (laughs) After the League essentially commended themselves for a job well done, Firestorm asked the assembled the most pertinent question. Now that we got this guy, how are we going to keep him in jail? And that was the end of... The Supremacy Factor, from Justice League of America, Volume 1, Issue 224. Grundy wanna know, too, how did they keep Little Hood Man in jail? Lenos? Why don't you describe the facility from which we had retrieved Dr. Cochin on June 28th, 1985? Accessing The Cochin Confinement Center was a single-cell solitary confinement prison stationed within the Antarctic Circle. No superpowered being was allowed to travel within 50 miles of the site. Most of the security was automated, with a rotating skeleton staff of seven guards at any one time. As well as one cook and two staff janitors, all with an education level no higher than a high school diploma or general education development certificate. Early attempts at psychiatric evaluation and rehabilitation had failed. Entity Joel Cochin would tend to turn the therapy sessions around onto the practitioners rather than apply the therapeutic benefits to himself. Telepsychiatry sessions had been advised, and at the time of extraction, these sessions were awaiting approval from the prison board. Whenever maintenance of the security systems was required, a medical intern would be flown to the site in advance to keep Entity Joel Cochin heavily sedated during the maintenance crew's visit, so he would not gain any technical know-how to engineer an escape. And even if Entity Joel Cochin were to manage to break out, he would be surrounded by hundreds of miles of Antarctic wasteland. There were no vehicles on site, Rotating personnel and supplies were flown in and out on an irregular schedule. A pretty ingenious setup, actually. Ingenious is also the word I would use to describe this story. To summarize, this 23-page tale featured a formidable adversary, and while not completely unique in concept, he was essentially a mutant with the powers of a plus a little extra after all. What is an mezzo? Yet he did have an intriguing motivation and a very unique personality, in my opinion. There were very few comic book characters at the time that could just not get enough of himself. Tell me about it. Kurt Busick's story not only delivered a high stakes menace, but also a hint of mystery dropping a number of clues for readers to try and figure out the nature of Paragon's abilities before they were revealed. And this issue was packed with great character moments. Mr. Busick had definitely understood each Justice Leaguer and gave them all distinct voices that were, again, very spot-on, and also brilliantly added an extra layer to the story. I also felt that there was a realistic team dynamic. It reminded me of workplaces of professionals that had worked together for years, so they were also chummy and casual as friends. And yet they would also have arguments, like the League's disagreement over how to initially investigate Cochin's laboratory. But they would also work them out without the melodramatic bickering which was commonplace in many a superhero team, including at times even the Justice League. And Mr. Busick had taken the time and the panels to add clever little bit scenes, like the informal dinner at Nemo's Revenge, Green Arrow being concerned over Black Canary's welfare in the meeting room, and the reciting of Poe's The Raven by Professor Martin Stein. Who? Which all added some nice human elements to balance the superhuman situations. Regarding the artwork... I had always liked Chuck Patton's clean, dynamic line work, and the late, great Dick Giordano added a crispness that, to me, could not be matched by other inkers of Mr. Patton's work. The art had just the right amount of detail to establish the setting without becoming cluttered. All of the characters' faces and bodies were expressive, and all of the battle scenes were brilliantly staged. As I had detailed a few times during the story review, in regards to the League's final gang-up on Paragon, and... I am
1: sure I would have beaten them in a fair fight.
0: Far? Like how you done that beatdown on Ms. Black Canary earlier in the story? Just how many mittens had you done gotten your life to want to take them all out on her?
1: I... that was beside the point. She refused to acknowledge that my way with dealing with that alley scum was the best. As I had
0: stated. Oh, here we go. Is little hood man mansplaining? Grundy hate mansplaining. I'm curious. Did more Angelicas spurn you when they found out you're such a pompous ass? Or cause you didn't have a real Casanova nearby to enable you to...
1: Perhaps it was time you showed the proper respect to the better man here?
0: Son, I already know who the better man is. And it ain't you. You're dang lucky we was so hospitable. But you'd long overstayed your welcome. Lamo old... Activating Interspatial Time Conveyor to Time and Coordinates of the Cochin Confinement Center, Antarctica, June 28th, 1985. No, I am not going back! He's making a break. Grunde,
1: block the exit. Move, you shambling simpleton, or I will make you move! Ha! Solomon Grundy, strongest one there is. Wrong, Oaf. I am much more stronger than... Oof! What?
0: Actually, Mr. Cochin, you can possess jacked up powers of any living person. Solomon Grundy is actually an undead creature. I knew this sidewinder was all gurgle and no guts. So let's see how that paragon stands up to my paragons. I'll get him for you, cowboy man! Grundy, don't! He may not be able to duplicate your strength, but he can still copy... ...my Aikido skills. Except that move was not designed to throw a person across a room either. I wonder if that was due to Paragon's ability enhancement? Or if that is simply the way martial arts work on this earth? Are you two all right, gentlemen? Mm, I will be but <laughs> Arr, little hood man get away mm. what are you waiting for grundy we gotta bring him back eventually gentlemen but perhaps we should let him go for the moment what little professor man mean think about it as revealed on episode six of the Dunn and one wonders podcast wonder show we had been recording this podcast from the pre-crisis Earth-1 universe that was reconstructed after the DC Infinite Crisis event, and it is completely unpopulated. How much of a threat would Paragon be here? There are no longer any super beings on this planet for him to mimic. In fact, once he is out of range of us, he will actually be in a worse situation than the prison from which we had pulled him because he will be completely and utterly alone. No human being from whom to siphon skills or knowledge. All his life he had felt superior to everyone else, but he was always reliant on someone else for that superior knowledge or capability. Soon, and perhaps for the first time in his life, he will find out what his actual capabilities truly are. I think he should learn that lesson for a few days before Mr. Grundy goes to collect him. Huh. How's Grundy supposed to find that coach again? With the tracker Mr. Manning placed on him when he first arrived. Oh. Uh. You did place the tracker on Mr. Cochin, Mr. Manning. As per our newly agreed protocol when bringing in guests who are of a dubious nature... Entity Terraman did indeed place the tracker on Entity Joel Cochin. However, uh, however, is it a good idea to leave him out there for so long? Oh, I am sure that Mr. Cochin can fend for himself. As I recall, all of the grocery and convenience stores on this earth were well-stocked when this universe was reconstructed. Though I am sure all of the fresh fruits and vegetables have gone to pot by now. Right. That's why Grundy and I are maintaining them thar farms and orchards up in Sonoma. And Manova likes it better up thar. I am sure that even with his limited knowledge and skills, Mr. Cochin would know how to open a box or use a can opener. But I see your point. Lenos. please keep tabs on Mr. Cochin's exact location, just in case he needs assistance, or is actually craftier than we know. While his presence here poses no threat to the space-time continuum, since we did remove him from his prison at the end of his pre-crisis timeline, I would just as soon put him back there before we bring another super-powered guest into the studio. Ah, sure thing. We'll give that long rider a good 48 hours and then send out a search. Uh, I mean the welcome wagon. Grundy, that is. Very good. Uh, why don't you head on back to your purdy wife and young'uns? Grundy and I can clean up here. Right. We have taken more time than planned as it is. And to be honest, I am no longer in the mood to do the mailroom segment right now. We'll just double up for episode 10. I'll be back in a few days to help edit this show together, after Mr. Cochin had been returned so you won't have to deal with my Aikido again. Sound good? You bit, You bit. Lamo. Entity Terraman. Should we not first see the professor safely home? Acknowledged. <laughs> Barring the final events, a good show, gentlemen. Thank you for everything Entity Terraman. You realize Entity Joel Cochin had overridden the tracker protocols. Wait, what? Right, but the professor didn't need to know that. Sides, you can use your normal scanners to detect the only other humanoid life form out there to find him. Actually, Entity Joel Cochin had taken advantage of his proximity to you earlier to boost your technical knowledge and reconfigure the tracker to act as a cloaking device. You mean the one I invented for use when we go out to... Actually, his device works better than yours. Course it does. Wait. What? What? So, entity Joel Cochin is completely invisible to every one of my scans. Oh, great. Like, this taint gonna become a future subplot to come back round and bite us in the prat. Wait, what? The Dunn and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, via email at wondersdone at gmail.com, or by voicemail at area code 415 779 4668. The views expressed on Dunn and One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated. With special thanks to Will Rogers for providing the voice of Green Arrow, And to Rob Kelly for providing the voice of Paragon. The Dun & One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Sometime in the near future. Deep in space lies an imperfect duplicate of Earth known as the cube-shaped bizarro world. On this topsy-turvy planet lives strange duplicates of Superman and Lois Lane, their children, and their newfound friends of the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. That am terrible episode of None and Start Non-Wonder Show podcast. Us must not do that again. Now me go to see Bizarro Lois and get slapping face. It am worst episode ever. Bizarro Professor Zoom am not proud, indeed. It was a creative audio program that will positively affect the lives of our listeners within this comic book reading aspect of their lives that they deem paramount and related to our podcast objective and content. It was being my pleasure participating here to be part of it. My thanks and appreciation for arranging to make the arrangements to have me present to be here. Bizarro Solomon Grunde agrees that this was indeed an unparalleled audio engagement experience. Ha ha, me pick next door to knock cover. What am that in Nation Tar? Nature. Bizarro Terraman entity not recognize Galactic Centurion's entities? Bizarro Terraman entity must not access original Terraman entity memories less often. Oh no, Bizarro label. Me no do that. Oh, us in little no trouble. Nok Chi debating Universal Translators. Haha, that am not convenient. This one looks a bit like the Malefactor, but not quite. The yellow egg has a similar energy signature as the Malefactor's robotic henchman. It was that energy signature that led us right here. But this energy frequency is slightly off by null X-Fight quark cycles compared to the sample given. And the report mentioned a green cube. Close enough. These two will come with us. And the others? Really, cadet? This is obviously the notorious Zoom crew. (laughs) Haha. Them look for Zoom crew. Us bizarro Zoom crew. They are obviously here to look for the Zoom crew since they had come here to where the Zoom crew is. See? They admit it. Which one of you is the Professor Zoom? Me I and myself are Professor... Professor... Enough. Now you attempt to confuse us. You will all come with us. Bizarro, not almost forget. Perhaps me use Bizarro imitator ray to not make Bizarro Namiko. So Bizarro Professor Zoom also cannot get slapped in. What? What happened? Where me Bizarro Zoom crew go?